Welcome to My Ed Expert, specializing in what's possible in education. By merging research, practice, and passion, we provide insights from top educational thought leaders for right now implementation. Now, here's your host, author Susie Pepper Rollins. I am really, really glad that you joined us for a captivating topic today. It's about the teenage years. Some truths about being a teenager, some myths about the teenage years, and mostly how we can help them. My guest is Terrence Houlihan. He is a director of school-wide counseling program in New York. He teaches university classes in school counseling. He provides professional development on adolescent development. What in the world does all that mean? That means that Terrence is an expert on teenagers, their unique needs, how we can better understand them, communicate with them, teach them, parent them, befriend them, all the above. How can we help them survive the teen years, but really thrive in them? How are you, Terrence? I'm doing very well. How about yourself, Susie? I am super duper. So the first thing I want to know is where this passion came, not just for counseling, because you do all this work with teenage development, but, you know, in, in to, to be passionate enough about it, to research it and do all of this, where did this come from? I think inherently, uh, I've always been a very curious person. And when I first started uh, in education as a classroom teacher back in the mid 90s, as much as I was fascinated with the content that I was teaching, it became a little bit more apparent to me that I couldn't just tell students what I what I knew. I was teaching uh, freshmen uh, in high school, ninth graders and, and 10th graders. So this is like 14, 15 and 16 year olds. So I started to become more interested in in them, so to speak, and best ways to reach them, connecting with them, so on and so forth. I think that that's where it first started for me, and it continued, you know, in education. But it really didn't hit home until I myself became a parent, and I watched my own son go through the teenage years. Uh, so then I became a little bit more interested in the science and the research behind it, and that kind of took me to where I'm at today. Well, that's interesting. Now, I'm going to tell you that I was a handful as a teenager. I'm going to apologize to anybody that it, it, it came in my path for about three years. So what were you like as a teenager? I was, uh, well, it's interesting. The school that I'm at right now, uh, there is a teacher who actually taught me when I was uh, in high school. And I think my first week on the job, uh, going back a few years ago, he said, oh, yeah, I remember you. You were a handful. So I think that that was the best way to sort of describe me. I was a handful in as much as, like I said, I was inherently curious. Uh, but I think to a large degree also, I, I had a tough time sitting for 40 minutes uh, in, in, in classes. So, uh, te- you know, teachers liked me in as much as I was a quote unquote good student, but I was inherently restless as well, like so many other teenagers. Well, I read something uh, to kind of kind of segue into that. I read something I thought was super fascinating on one of your blogs, and I did not know this. Um, and I taught eighth grade, as as a matter of fact. And I always joke with people that if I didn't quit teaching eighth grade, I was going to be sagging my pants soon, you know, because I became like an eighth grader after so many years of working with eighth graders. Right. But I read something fascinating that said that teenagers use a different part of their brain when they're reading our facial expressions. And I thought that was super fascinating. Tell us about that and how we can use that in the classroom as parents. What's up with that? Yeah, isn't that interesting? The um, <clears throat> the research actually came from uh, Mary Yergel and Todd, 
who uh, at the time she was at, uh, at at Harvard, and one of her graduate associates, uh, Stacy Gruber, and her uh, ran a series of experiments where they put adults and teenagers into an MRI machine and essentially showed them on slides different facial expressions. Now, first and foremost, imagine yourself in an MRI machine and you have to look at facial expressions of fear. I don't know how these people did it. But nonetheless, she had one group of adults and one group of teenagers, and they looked at six basic facial expressions in the very beginning associated with six basic emotions. And then the experimenters, Jurgen and Todd and Stacy Gruber, uh, started showing the people in the MRI these different facial expressions, and they had to guess. What's fascinating is that the teenagers said for a facial expression that the adults saw as fear, 50% of the teenagers saw that facial expression as anger. And when they went back to the MRI slides, they were looking at the area of the brain that the adults and the teenagers were using, and they were using two different parts of the brain. So the adults were using the much more developed part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, whereas the teenagers were using a, a more primitive part of the brain, uh, we'll just, we'll call the limbic system. Uh, so there are times where, and you may have experienced this yourself as a teacher, especially with eighth graders, where suddenly a student will become very defensive. Uh, you know, if for a parent, their child will suddenly become very angry and we're not too sure exactly you know, what we said or what we did, uh, some of that could be related to their misreading of facial expressions. That is so fascinating. So in the classroom, I'm trying to think how my what what guidance do you give to teachers to try to take that research and use it? Because I I know I, I need to obviously be aware of my facial expressions. So maybe maybe what? Give us some little help on that. I think what's most crucial in these types of instances is to use words behind our expressions, especially for, for teenagers. And this may sound counterintuitive to a lot of people in education and even to parents, because I think to some degree or another, we're all operating from the perspective of, well, now they're, they're not kids anymore. They're older and they should know X, Y, and Z. If, if, and this is what helps about knowing a little bit about brain development is it gives us a sense of context. So what happens in adolescence is, is almost like a rekindling of, of, of the childhood years. You know, when, when children are first born, they go through this explosion in what we call, um, you know, gray matter and the, the brain, it just expands. And in teen years, what happens is they go through a development of white matter. Uh, they, they use it or lose it. So there are some skills that it doesn't matter that they've been on the planet for 14 or 16 or 12 years. Uh, they may need some more specific skills in accurately reading facial expressions. So, you know, a teacher or a parent may be trying to show disappointment and then suddenly you know, that child or that student turns around and they become really defensive, really angry because they see the disappointment as anger. So it's important to say, you know, I'm disappointed that you didn't turn in your homework. I'm disappointed that you didn't take out the garbage um, and to say it in as clear a manner as possible. 
Or is it good to say, you know, I'm not angry about this. I mean, just to get that out there first, is that helpful or not? That can be very helpful at times because it, I don't know about you, but, you know, in my own relationships, when somebody is seeking clarification or is looking to resolve and they started off with, look, I'm not angry. However, I think that that's very, very helpful. And to be honest with you, Susie, I don't think it's just crucial for, you know, using with teenagers. I think in all our relationships. Well, right, because no one wants to be in trouble. I mean, I still have that feeling, like, am I in trouble? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's good to kind of get that. Um, that comes from my teenagers. Okay, here's a question I'm, I really want to know about is from teaching them so long, and I, and I read something in one of your articles about this, and this is what made me want to ask you about this. There was an, one of your articles said, um, about a mother or a parent, it was a parent, I don't know if it was a mom or dad, and said something about the, their teenager thought they were always staring at them and stuff like that. And it made me think about, are teenagers hypersensitive? Cause it feels to me like they think the whole world is watching every little thing they do when really <laughs> the obvious thing is they have 30 teenagers and they're all worried about, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so no one's watching you. So do, do they have that or not? Uh, yes, they do. And, um, it's actually it's referred to as a cognitive distortion uh, that um, that they that they all essentially go through. Um, I don't know. Are, are you familiar with um, Jean Piaget? Yes, from college. Stage, <laughs> yeah, stages of cognitive development. This I, I get a kick out of this because Jean Piaget theorized, you know, the stages of cognitive development. Uh, I, I'm I'm being very brief when I say this. It. He sort of theorized that by the age of seven, children grow out of egocentricity. And if you've ever spent any time with adolescents, uh, they, they can be some of the most egocentric people that we've ever come in contact with. Maybe, I don't know, maybe a reality star on Bravo TV uh, is, is in good competition there. But nonetheless, they are egocentric and it's actually quite normal for them to be that way. The research shows that between the ages of 12 to 13, self-consciousness peaks. In other words, they become more and more aware of themselves as being separate from other people. So in that sense, it's perfectly understandable that they would almost operate from a perspective of people are watching me. And there was a psychologist by the name of David Elkind who theorized that all teenagers go through this period of what he called imaginary audience. And part of Elkind's theory was this idea that with puberty comes all of these changes, obviously with their body, but also changes within their social circle, the shifts in going from elementary school to middle school to high school. So they become very, very aware of all of the changes around them and within them. So they do spend time looking at themselves and thinking about themselves. It's not a moral issue. It's not a spiritual issue. It's not that there's a, there's a, you know, a psychological disorder, essentially. It's part of their developmental process. So if they are looking at themselves, then why wouldn't they think that other people are looking at them? So, well, yeah, that, that's super fascinating. And I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I have to ask you this no. because that imaginary audience and now I'm thinking about social media 
and and how that draws them in with all the selfies and the pictures and the up at night and you know does how does that relate or do you have any commentary on that yeah it's it's preliminary in terms of the research but it it's almost logical that this would be that much more uh for lack of a better expression potentially damaging to their uh, self-consciousness and if if you're familiar with social media and and this idea of of quote unquote likes you know, uh, on Facebook, we, we like things on, on Instagram. We like things on Twitter. We like things. And for teenagers, that that becomes, you know, part of their, you know, attention-seeking behavior or their, um, you know, need to sort of have people recognize them. So it's, it's, it's upped up the ante, so to speak. Well, that's really interesting. I can kind of relate to that a little bit. As weird as that sounds, because I mean, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but if I put something out on Twitter and no one likes it or something, I'm like, "Wow, I thought that was pretty clever," you know. So I kind of relate. I can understand that a little bit, and I'm sure. all grown. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Let's get into the classroom, and and I, if we have uh, teenagers at home, uh, I think that this is a critical thing that you work with with people, and that's about negotiation skills. You talk about how we should possibly rethink the way we negotiate with teenagers as opposed to younger children. So help us out a little bit on that path. Absolutely. The uh, I think it goes back to something that I said a little bit earlier, Susie. It's this idea that uh, because they're in middle school or because they're in high school or because they're, you know, in their teen years that they are, quote unquote, no longer children. Uh, what we're finding out more and more through through neuroscience is that uh, adolescence is different than childhood, but to a large degree, their their brains are still very much developing, and they're not little adults. They're big kids to a large degree, and they things need to be a little bit different for them. So, and they don't like necessarily be, being referred to as kids. So it could be you know a little complicated. What I mean by negotiating differently is that, you know, the parent-child relationship, and when I say child, I'm talking about the younger kids, the teacher-student relationship in elementary school is, is very much of a, of a power structure. And, the, and little kids and younger students oftentimes are looking to please adults. So when they enter teen years, and this is being very stereotypical, but the average teenager is no longer looking to please the adult. In fact, they're looking to please that same 13-year-old or that 14-year-old, that 15-year-old. So the, the power structure is changing for them. And I think in that context too, we need to change the way in which we, quote unquote, wield our power. And that's why I talk about negotiating, trying to figure out ways to compromise. Uh, instead of parents saying, these are my, these are the rules, uh, going to them and saying, you know, if you were me, how would you handle this situation? Uh, the teacher is going to the students, you know, how do you want this class to operate? Uh, so they contribute to what the possible consequences should be in that context. And then parents and teachers can then hold them accountable in the framework of, well, you came up with these consequences. You know, that's great advice. And I know even in, in academics, we try to 
weave in choices so that they have some opportunities. So it doesn't always feel like, because if you think about it in a, in a school situation, students don't have a lot of control. I mean, you know, this is where you're going to go. The bus comes at this time. This, and so a lot of those things are, I I can relate to that where they don't, they have to feel some autonomy at school. And that, that, that gets me to this point here that I read in some of your things. And this is in a lot of the research is students need to feel connected at school. They do better when they're connected. What can we do as, as teachers, as leaders? Um, and as parents to help students feel connected, particularly during these teenage years when they're going through all this and they're not trying to please adults and all the things that are happening, what can we do? That's a fantastic question. And that's, that's a big piece of, you know, what, what I think drives me is this um, belief and this knowledge that, that it's not just kids. I mean, we all need to feel connected. Uh, we need to feel connected to a sense of meaning in our work. We need to feel connected to our families. We need to feel connected to, um, you know, our spirituality, so on and so forth. Um, so it, it would make sense. But the research shows that uh, school connectedness is one of those things that uh, allows students to, um, you know, attend school, uh, achieve better grades, all of those things. And when trying to find out, what is it about school connectedness or how do we know that students feel connected to schools? The the research that comes back is in some way, shape or form, the students have to know that the adults in the building care about them. Um, so, you know, the question might be, well, then how do we convey, you know, to our students that, that they know that we like them? Um, and I think a lot of that, is really dependent upon how we greet them. And it's not just greeting them before they come into the classroom. A lot of it is also the way in which they're greeted when they first come into the building. So having adults there at the door to say good morning. And I don't know about you, Susie, but you know, when I come into a place and people say hello to me and they, they say my name and they smile or something along that tends to start my day off on a fairly positive note. And, you know, my, my invitation to, to educators and even to parents as well is, is to let kids come in through the door on that positive note because they will feel a little bit more connected. And I have this saying also that when teens feel like you get them, you've got them. Because teenagers often feel as if adults really don't understand them. So figuring out ways in which to allow teens to open up and feel connected will allow them to sort of, you know, feel more connected to us. And that is something we can all do tomorrow. You know, to tell a student, I'm so glad you're here today. It's so good to see you today. I think you're really going to like what we're doing today. I mean, because it is their school. And also, you know, to, to to get responses from them. How's this lesson working for you? How's that working for you? To listen to them because it is their learning and their school, right? Yeah. So I'm loving what you're saying about that. And that's something we can all do tomorrow. Just, hey, so great to see you. And start off on a positive way rather than you're late. or the, And look, it's a hard job, right? We're we're trying to do we're trying to teach them all kinds of things. So I think that's a wonderful thing to start with. Okay, I'm going to talk about something that's in the news off and on, and I've got some research on it too. And 
it's about sleep and teenagers. And so much has come out about their sleep and when we should start school and what we could do about their sleep. Tell us about, I, this was fascinating to me, and I read it in one of your articles, is what a brain, a teenager's brain looks like when they haven't had sleep. Can you share that with us? Sure, sure. Uh, this I, I learned this probably about five years ago or so. I was uh, attending a conference for educators at North Shore University Hospital out in Long Island <clears throat> in New York. And it was uh, the keynote speaker was Dr. Judy Owens. And she was the uh, sleep expert who was down at um, uh, National Children's Hospital. And I believe she's also done some uh, teaching at Brown University. So uh, Dr. Owens uh, essentially did research with PET scans. And she said, you know, in the lab, what we did is we created a sleep-deprived teenagers. So they kept waking them up every so often and had them do tasks. Uh, and they were, I forget the exact amount of hours of sleep that they gave them, but they, they deprived them of sleep over a period of time. And they took those PET scans and then they took PET scans of teenagers who had adequate sleep, but also had a clinically diagnosed attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. And the PET scans matched. So when you have teens who are chronically sleep deprived, what starts to happen is that brain looks like an ADHD brain. Their behavior becomes very much ADHD. Their attention span, it's very, very limited. Their irritability increases. So that, that is fascinating research. Isn't that something? And there's so much out there about start times. And I know districts are trying to adapt to that research, but they've, they've really got to get some sleep. It's really fascinating to hear that. I was amazed to read that in one of your articles. Okay, so now we've been talking about the brain, but at the same time, their hormones are changing. Is it a myth that they're off the chart, really, or what's happening with their hormones? I mean, we joke about it, but is it really true? And how much of an influence is that on their behavior? I know I'm asking you a really hard question here, but give us a little bit of guidance. Sure. Uh, it's not a myth. Uh, it is, you know, their hormones are changing quite a bit. And I think to a large degree, many of us have operated over the years from it's, it's either the brain or it's the hormones, uh, you know, that, that causes all these changes that we see during the teen years. It's actually both. Uh, but, but what happens, especially with, you know, if I can go back to a second with sleep, the, um, you know, it's, it's not just uh, brain development. It particularly is uh, the shifting in for boys, testosterone levels for girls and with estrogen levels. And what happens is those testosterone levels get to, and estrogen levels get so high that they sort of impact an area of, of the brain within the limbic system. I had mentioned this before in the primitive part of the brain. That's where our sleep cycles are. And it pushes back the circadian clock for teenagers. So this is very normative during their puberty years. Uh, so, you know, they, they actually end up st staying up later. Uh, they have to get up at the same time, so to speak. So that's where all of that, you know, all those, that, that pushing from sleep experts and, and, and parents and schools are, are coming in in terms of making, you know, times for school to start later. But the, 
you know, testosterone, it's, the, these are two really interesting books. Uh, they were written by, um, oh, geez, her name escapes me. She wrote, uh, her name is Luann Brizendine. And she wrote uh, The Female Brain, uh, one book, and the other brain, uh, the other book was The Male Brain. And what she essentially describes is that testosterone is like the, the king hormone in the male brain and estrogen is the queen hormone in the female brain. And once those two hormones get thrown off, whether they increase in adolescence or they decrease in menopause and andropause, those can set off, you know, a chain of events with other hormones changing. Uh, so it, it kind of works the same way. You know, the research that we know about changing changes in behavior and mood in menopause and andropause kind of works the same way in the adolescent years. So it's not a myth. You know, the, the hormones really do affect their behavior. Wow, that's just fascinating. And uh, your work is so amazing. I want to tell everybody, share with us your website. It's easy to remember and your Twitter sure. for us. The website is www.surviveyourteens.com. And then my Twitter handle is at survive your teens, but this time it's spelt with a U. Yep, right. It's you are. And so I'm going to, po- we're going to post that guy. So when you read the, the, the little synopsis of this podcast, we'll have a link to, to Terrence's website and his Twitter. I'm going to follow you within 10 minutes after we get off of here. I think your work is so amazingly fascinating. I mean, I've just learned so much today. So. We're teachers, we're counselors, we're leaders, we're in these buildings, we've got packed classrooms, we're trying to support these students. Give us some sage advice. If you just had to think of like your top things off your head, what should we know? What can we do tomorrow to really help our kids? Sure. There, I think the, the piece that I had mentioned before, when teens feel like you get them, you've got them. So to a large degree, we have to seem, well, we have to be interested. If you're not interested uh, you're going to have a tough time working in education. If you don't have a sense of humor, you're going to have a tough time. But I think in particular with teenagers, you know, being interested, being curious, tell me more about that and being willing to listen to what it is that they have to say. And, you know, making sure that that you're not sort of, make, you know, giving off facial expressions that they're going to misread. I think that's that's key. The And this second piece is in line with that first piece. I think... To some degree or another, there comes a time where as educators, we need to be more interested in the content of our students' lives rather than in the content of our lesson plans. And that's a tall order, especially today. You know, we're in a hyper testing environment and it's all about numbers. It's all about scores. But to a large degree, anyone who's been in education, whether you're a teacher or you were a student, you, you know this is the truth. It's not so much about the score. It's about that connection with the teacher. Well, and as we know, you know, we, we forget. Look, it's super important, and I'm, all, I'm an academic person, but we all know that we're going to forget a lot of that. I'm going to forget about that, the feet of the Spanish Armada, you know, after high school probably. But I, we all remember those great teachers that, who changed our lives. I can absolutely... 
um, tell you that my high school teachers particularly put me on an entirely different track. They saw something Correct. in me I did not see in myself. I can tell you that. So it, it we, it's a good reminder every day about that because we are in a little bit of a pressure cooker right now with tests and, and accountability and all. And I'm not against accountability, but we also have to see our kids. You know, we, we can I can do both. You know, we can do both. So I'm so yeah. happy that you said that. Well, I'll tell you one. I'm gonna, I've got so many notes. And I just love talking to you. You know, one thing I could definitely do more, greet those students with something. Let's start with something positive right out of the gate, right when they walk in. We're so happy to see you. I'm glad that you're here. Be aware of their sleep issues, their hormonal issues. Their brains are changing. They're not adults, even though sometimes they look like adults, right? Help them connect at school. Uh, What are a couple of things that I left out that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Uh, You know, in that vein of greeting students, it's really challenging. You know, myself, I've been in the classroom for many, many years, still, you know, working with graduate students. Uh, we may not necessarily have the time or we may not necessarily have the emotional energy to be all that positive. There was this really interesting piece that was posted by um, Edutopia. I follow them on Twitter. And the research shows that e- even just teachers who do fist bumps with with students on their way into the classroom those those classes they tend to have less discipline referrals those students tend to perform better their excitability tends to be higher so even so if you don't have the energy to say you know it's so great to see you i'm so happy you're going to be excited you know for today's lesson just a you know the kids call it a pound or a fist bump whatever you want to call it that can go so far all right. Everybody's going to fist pump tomorrow. Let's, I think we can all do that. That's a great starting point. Well, Terrence, I want to thank you so much for being here today. And Terrence and I do not want to close this podcast without thanking everyone, every educator out there for all that you do to light up your kids' worlds. You're the most important people in the entire universe. Join us every week for a podcast on Wednesdays with a thought leader, educational thought leader like Terrence Houlihan. Terrence, I'm so glad you joined us today. Thank you so much, Susie. I'm really honored that you asked me to be part of this, and it's been great talking with you. All right, guys. Bye-bye. We are so glad you joined us on this episode of My Ed Expert. For more resources on the ever-evolving realm of education, head on over to myedexpert.com and get inspired by all of our author's work through downloads, strategies, and best practices. While you're there, hop on to get updates right to your inbox because you don't want to miss a thing right here on My Ed Expert.